Welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz. I'm a life science research manager and consultant. I'm here to help scientists and to help those who are managing to help science be successful. In this radio podcast, we'll explore current strategies and practices taken by some of the most respected life science leaders of today. We'll be hosting guests who lead independent or academic research labs, startup pharmaceuticals and biotech entrepreneurs, and other operational support leaders, VPs, chief operating officers, managers, and the like. We'll explore some of the following lessons, what steps they've taken to reach their current scientific goals, what unexpected challenges they faced along the way, and what tools and skills that have been critical to their success. We'll listen to what advice they would give to those who are willing to follow them and to pursue a career in leading life sciences. Again, thank you for joining and welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is episode number one. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Peter Tontanos. Peter is a professor at the UCLA School of Medicine and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute Principal Investigator. His lab is studying the molecular mechanisms of metabolic disorders like diabetes and obesity. He's been a leader in the field for 15 years. Peter's an amazing person. I've known Peter for 20 years now. I've had the pleasure of working closely with him and have seen his work firsthand. It's a lot of work. I'm still amazed by his leadership skills. Let's chat with him today and hear about his journey and see what fabulous insights he can give us so that we can be successful in our own life science journey. We know his science, but what does it take to run a successful research lab? Let's listen in. Hi, Peter. How's it going? This is Damien again, and I want to first thank you so very much and welcome to the Leading Life Science podcast. So do you want to say something, anything to the audience out there? Good morning. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Thank you again so very much, Peter, for joining me. Um, I think I told the audience already that how much you've been such an influence within my life. You were like my former boss and mentor and a dear friend. But I want the audience to know a little bit more about you. I think we already said that they know your science. However, I don't think they know enough about what it takes actually to do your science and hopefully you can give some insights to some of our future scientists out there and so why don't you first begin with telling them a little bit about what you do and we'll begin from there uh, what i do now is run a research laboratory that's interested in uh, broadly the link between uh, metabolism and human disease uh, we're interested in molecular pathways, uh, transcriptional regulation of genes, and understanding how those uh, molecular pathways and molecular circuits impact whole body physiology with relation to lipid metabolism and how those pathways can go wrong in human disease. Uh, we got there uh, through a, a long road which uh, primarily uh, involved both training as a physician and also as a scientist. So the fact that I uh, went to medical school as, as well as did a PhD really catalyzed an interest um, in my own life of doing basic science which had some relevance to medicine. Uh, 
we don't do translational research. We don't work directly with, with people. Uh, however, uh, in my back of my mind at all times is the desire to translate the basic science findings we have uh, and make them relevant for human disease. So that's you know, uh, my primary interest at the moment, and all, and all of our research is sort of geared in that, uh, in that direction. It's great, Pete. I think it's hard considering a lot of people don't realize the, the impacts of fat metabolism and regulation within our health community today. And why do you say that it's not maybe uh, trans completely translational research, but I think it still impacts us, our health community already. So let me ask you then, what is it about the research and science then on more of a humanistic aspect that really drew you to, uh, to, the, to your research? Um, you know, again, I think uh, I entered science uh, for relatively practical reasons, probably for the same reason that most people enter science, and that is uh, the first time I worked in a laboratory, I fell in love and realized that this is what I want to do. And, um, you know, from an early stage, uh, I knew I wanted to work in a lab and uh, be allowed to do experiments and, and play around and investigate hypotheses and ideas. Um, and then, you know, as things went along, you could have the, as you, you know, progress and get trained and eventually have your own group, you get the luxury of deciding what you're going to work on. And for me, um, you know, I have tried to choose basic science questions that have relevance to human disease because, um, you know, in the end, we all hope that what we do uh, with our lives makes some difference for the, for the broader community. Um, it can be hard to explain that to your father or your girlfriend or your wife why <laughs> working with these little mice running around in a cage is in any way relevant to someone's real life and to someone's diabetes, but in the big picture it is. It's just on a very large scale. Uh, but I think for all of us who do science, having in the back of our mind that what we're doing is fundamentally important um, is really key. All of us want to believe that what we're doing is worthwhile and is making a, a practical difference in, in people's lives and uh, is just not fun for the sake of fun in the laboratory. That's great. I think communicating the broader scope of our work really matters significantly. And one of the things that I find is actually difficult is communicating the importance and learning how to communicate that to uh, a broader audience or to a different audience. And especially within the business community or those that actually administer the, the business side of especially dealing with personnel, finances, it's 12 and just even uh, arguing in, in the sake of try, trying to be able to promote and get some more grants. So can you, let's talk a little bit more about the business side of it and running the research lab. Let's begin with what were some of your biggest surprises when you first started running your lab that you just wish that they had uh, taught, and uh, t taught you and trained you in when you were during your postdoctoral training? Um, the, the dirty secret is there really is very little training for being a principal investigator in your graduate or postdoctoral training. Uh, you are trained to do bench research and you're trained to 
think about scientific problems, and that's certainly useful. Um, but most of the job of running a laboratory is uh, writing, public speaking, managing people, um, managing finances, and uh, for lack of a better word, managing politics um, and interactions with other colleagues and with uh, other people at your university. And uh, for the most part, your postdoctoral training doesn't prepare you for any of that. Um, Probably we could do better um, in preparing people. Uh, I think for people who are currently doing postdoctoral or um, graduate training, the things that you could focus on at the moment, which would be most helpful in the future, uh, are writing and public speaking. Because those are the two uh, critical skills that you really need to be successful in uh, selling your research both to funding agencies as well as to the journals and broader communities. You have to be able to communicate your ideas and the importance of your results and place them in context. And you have to be able to get other people excited about what you're doing. Um, and no matter how good a pipetter you are, if you can't get up and explain to somebody else why what you're doing is interesting, uh, no one's going to give you any money. <laughs> So that's a, those are critical skills that I think uh, everybody should be devoting more time to uh, as a fellow and as a student. Write as often as you can, get as much practice as writing as, as possible, and uh, get as much practice public speaking as possible. Because uh, in the end, that is most of the job of running a laboratory. It's writing and uh, speaking, and also managing people, which is a whole other um, skill and uh, set of things you have to think about which really don't enter into graduate or postdoctoral training very much. So what would be the first things that you felt as though you needed to focus more on? Would you say is like um, managing your people, recruitment, or would you say the funding and managing your bu budgets? Or even the salesmanship, if you will? about communicating your science? Um, you know, I guess to, to back to the previous question, of what was, what was one of the surprises? Uh, one surprise was how much time uh, needs to be devoted with, to, um, you know, administrative uh, hoops and hurdles, which really had nothing to do with science. So keeping your laboratory licensed to do radioactivity and animal work and biosafety and um, biohazard and, and the, the, the amount of paperwork that goes into just the regulatory aspects of having a laboratory operation uh, is large <laughs> and uh, something that you don't necessarily uh, think of ahead of time. And that's, you know, unfortunately that's time that's, you know, those of us who have to do it view as non-productive. It's, it's, it's something you have to do, but it's time away from what you would really rather be doing, which is thinking about science and actually, you know, talking to people in the laboratories. Uh, but that's, that's part of the job. I mean, there is a, a very significant aspect of uh, managerial operations that comes into running the laboratory, which is um, fundamentally non-scientific and just practical. But it's something that you just have to, you just have to do. There's no way around it. You have to have a license for your radioactivity. So you were talking about a lot of the management aspect and how it has almost like no real direct influence on the science. However, it's one of those necessary evils, if you will. 
one of the things that has been my own motto is like, I love management so you don't have to. So, and I find that a lot of researchers and uh, scientists that, that they really truly want to do much more science instead of running the, running the science or the business of science. What would you say kind of uh, skills or tools or practices that you've implemented in your own uh, life and business that helped you focus more on the science, like maybe routines or even um, specific types of uh, personnel that you recruited to handle these things, or even just like automated systems? Uh, my management style probably is can be summed up as the idea that if you set a good example uh, for people to follow, that um, in some ways, that may be the most powerful way that you can influence uh, how somebody conducts themselves. And so I try to, um, you know, inspire people in my laboratory by, um, you know, obviously being excited and interested uh, in the work, and hopefully that, uh, you know, passion becomes contagious. That certainly was the case for me in my training. My mentors, Bruce Spiegelman and Ron Evans, were both um, extremely passionate about science, and, and being around them. Uh, really fueled my uh, desire to continue in a research career. Um, you know, at the end of the day, neither Bruce or Ron really told me anything about how to men, men, how to run a laboratory, who I should hire, you know, how I should go about the managerial aspects of the job. Um, you know, that's really not something that ever came up. Um, but you learn by watching uh, your mentors and how they operate. And now that I have my own lab, I more or less try to make myself a hybrid of Bruce and Ron. I take the uh, qualities that I, um, you know, uh, think are most appropriate for me from from the two of them, and try to conduct myself accordingly. And I think that um, in terms of leadership, I, I really believe that that's the the largest, the biggest thing that you can do is just um, set a good example and act the way you want. Um, that you expect other people to act. I would say the, another um, key to my approach to management is that um, problems down the line are most easily avoided if you never hire the problem people in the first place. And so I think uh, being extremely careful about who you hire and hiring personalities that are uh, suited to working in a group environment. Um, it's underappreciated that a laboratory really is a group and team effort more than you, you might think. Uh, people think of science as a you know, lone person working in the corner doing his own thing. Um, but at least in, in the type of laboratory that we run, which you know has a lot of in vivo animal work that requires multiple uh, people to do many of the experiments, uh, it's not a every man for himself uh, uh, environment, and if you're only uh, out for yourself, you're really not going to thrive, certainly in a laboratory um, environment like mine. So I am looking for people who are not lone wolves. I'm looking for people who are team players. And you know, as you remember from uh, being in my lab, uh, when someone comes to interview, they not only interview with me, they also talk to everybody else in the laboratory. And the laboratory has veto power. If they don't like someone, it doesn't matter how many cell papers they have, uh, they're not getting hired. 
And uh, that has largely worked over the past 15 years to you know, prevent us from having too many um, bad apples in the mix, because one bad apple goes a long way. So I think the, the, the bottom line here is there, there is that I would advise anyone you know, starting a, a new laboratory to be extremely careful about who you hire and make sure you're hiring personalities um, that are not going to be a problem uh, down the road. Because once they're there and intertwined in your research, um, it's very hard to get rid of them. It can be very disruptive if they become uh, problems down the road. So the best approach is uh, be very selective of who you take in in the first place. It's so good that you talk about the culture side of running a group and leading that group. And I think it's always hard to really understand who you're going to be getting until they actually come in and then they start working within the group. I really like the fact that you uh, mentioned that you use your people to actually select the people that you're going to be bringing in and they have actually the veto power too. Because I mean, in any, in any kind of group situation, it's usually the group that basically uh, will be working within that, uh, that sphere. What would you say is probably the best approach to finding some of these good talents? And like, I know you had mentioned that leading, uh, uh, leading by example has been like one of your strategies for having people uh, come in. But unfortunately, there's a lot of bad apples out there. I think most people already know that. But how do you weed through all those weeds, if you will, to find those, uh, those good seeds? Um, it's a particular challenge to get people when you are first starting out. Um, I was very fortunate when I was first starting out to um, be able to recruit a couple people who were already at UCLA into my laboratory uh, who are great people and they really helped to um, start off on, on the right foot. Obviously you were there and you remember. Um, you know, so we were able to, to start a good atmosphere from the, from the very beginning. Uh, but I never hired someone from, you know, an advertisement or ever or, or actively looking for someone. Um, I've been fortunate to have people apply and show up at my door, um, you know, enough of whom are good that I could just hire the good ones. Um, and for the most part, the people who have come into my laboratory, a lot of them are people um, who were either in the field or had previously worked with for somebody that I know, and that's a huge help to be able to uh, evaluate whether someone's appropriate or not. If you can call their mentor up and get the the, um, the bottom line as to whether this person really is good or not, or whether they're a problem or not, and you're confident that they'll give you the they'll tell, they'll tell you the truth, um, that goes a long way. Um, I never hired someone um, uh, that I couldn't. You know, talk to their mentor or be really sure about their background. I certainly never hired uh, anyone from overseas, sight unseen. Um, you know, some people you may have to do that. That may be necessity when you're just starting out. But to the extent that you can uh, find people that who you can uh, verify and really learn, uh, get valid recommendations about ahead of time, that really helps. And as the laboratory grows, um, people are attracted to the laboratory by um, 
by your publications and by seeing you out and about at, at meetings. So it's incredibly important to to be seen and and to be um, uh, to be visible at national meetings because uh, it's quite common that someone tells me, oh, I applied to your laboratory because I saw you speak at X meeting and I thought what you talked about sounded really interesting. Um, that really, um, that helps. Uh, I've also had people apply to the laboratory because they um, hung out with some of my students and postdocs at a Keystone meeting and they said it seemed like it was a good group of people and they were really excited about the work and that that was part of the their decision to apply to the lab. So um, there are all sorts of factors that go into uh, building a presence in the community and making yourself visible and known such that you're going to be in a position to attract people to come uh, apply to you. Uh, because if you're, you really want to see, set a good example and uh, create an environment where you're doing good science and uh, the environment will be attractive. And, and that's, the, that's the best advertisement you can do. Is, uh, publish good stuff and convince other people it's interesting. You know, it's so funny that you were talking about people talking about what it's like to work with you or what it's like to work in your lab. And I, of all people, know I've been there, been there at the beginning of, of it all. We were, it was just you and I and a bunch of boxes from uh, Fisher. <laughs> So you're ready, definitely, definitely. I think some of those are still there, by the way. <laughs> That's good to know. That's always good to know. <laughs> so m still some of my own, um, how should I say, uh, history still haunts the halls of uh, the Tontano's lab. But you touched upon one aspect I don't think a lot of people realize, and just from my own experience, is the, the legacy aspect this legacy aspect becomes more of like your uh, your advertisement for, as well as to recruit good people, recruit good trainees. Do you does that come into play when you're managing and mentoring your people? Like who, how they will become, or what they will become when they uh, when they graduate or leave your uh, your lab to bigger, brighter pastures? Is that does that come into play in? making your decision is this person trainable or is this person uh can i help this person with their career does that come into play um i mean to some extent i mean i guess it, it all goes back to again uh hiring good people in the first place um there's a phenotype of people who are going to be successful in science and that is you come in and you're just uh jumping in the bit, you can't wait to do science and you're excited about it and you wouldn't ever consider doing anything else and um, that's the phenotype of the person who's going to in the end be successful because it's a long road and there's going to be ups and downs and you have to be gung-ho about it going in. If someone comes in and says, well, I thought about doing this and I thought about doing something else and I figured I'd give this a try but this doesn't work out, I'll go to law school. Uh, that's not the phenotype of the person who's going to hang in there and uh, really be successful in science. The only reason to do science is because you love it and you just couldn't consider doing anything else. And uh, that's the type of uh, person I'm looking for. And to some extent, uh, those are the type of people that um, you just hope not to screw it up. Uh, you can't really break them. You can't, if someone comes in and they're not interested in science, there's no, there's no amount of uh, cajoling or um, 
a rating from me that's going to turn them into a scientist. So either they they have to start out, it's mostly self-directed and self-motivated, and if you're not self-motivated, that really can't be imposed from the outside. So people who are in the laboratory who, who aren't productive, you know, I can try to push them, but I don't really think that that's likely to be successful in the end. If they're not self-directed and excited, uh, you know, I can help to I try to get them excited by hopefully giving them interesting things to work on. Um, but at the end of the day, if they don't want to do it, uh, no amount of external pressure is going to turn them into a scientist. Um, and what I hope people take uh, forward from the laboratory, at least in part, is the the view of the that the environment of the laboratory is important, and I hope that they uh, would aim to uh, you know, set up a similar environment in their own groups, where you have uh, a place where, in general, people like coming to work and they're happy to be there, and they're not uh, dreading um, interacting with the person at the next bench. That it's a, a happy and, and safe and, and pleasant place to be, um, and uh, that's takes a lot of effort to create that environment, and I think that's one of the most important things that hopefully I can, you know, again, you know, show by example that this is what a laboratory environment should be, and that this is an environment that really is, uh, helps everybody be more productive. So we were talking about earlier about that productivity, and it's obvious like we all need to have good people in there. And finding the good people takes a few ty different types of strategies and selling your science and getting people excited about it. But then at the end of the day, it becomes a management of the, once you have all the people there, it becomes a management of the actual resources, meanings like the uh, equipments, the operations. And for the most part, your people will be, help you to maintain all of that. However, we were talking about your science again and selling that is that becomes like a component for bringing in and drawing more funding as well to like basically the energy source, if you will, for all of your work. How would you say you focus more on the financial si uh, side of, of the business? Do you find it's, it's much more useful just to bring in as much money as possible to compensate <laughs> uh, for some of the potential failed experiments that may go through? Or do you find is that like being very critical at looking at your uh, each one of your experiments and or just um, being cheap on some aspects of experiments or doing managing your funds a little bit better? What do you think are some of the good strategies for for running a successful lab? And what are some of the strategies you've used or experimented with as far as the finances go? My philosophy is that you have to spend money to make money. And uh, I think one of the mistakes that you can uh, make when you're just starting out is being too conservative with your startup funds. Uh, and you know, try to take the attitude that I need to run on my startup funds for 10 years. That's not the right <laughs> attitude. The attitude should be, I want to generate as much interesting preliminary data as fast as possible, and I'm willing to spend my money in order to do it. Because once you have that data, that will enable you to get uh, more funding. Uh, so you really do have to spend the resources in order to generate the data, and it's the data that's going to get, get you the next lot of funding. Um, in general, my approach is more is better. There's no such thing as too much money. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the climate has changed a little bit, so that I certainly spend more of my time writing grants than I did 10 years ago. 
10 years ago, you could write a grant and expect to get it if it was reasonably good. And nowadays, you expect to write the grant three times before you get it. Uh, that is a change, and so more of your time gets devoted to it. Uh, but there's definitely no such thing as too much money. Uh, at the same time, you, you do want to try to use your resources wisely. Um, I'm sure everybody could do better and, and be more efficient at how they spend the money. And the larger the laboratory is, the harder it is to micromanage everybody's expenditures. And again, if you want to do, um, I look at every expenditure that goes at, the, you know, other than tissue culture supplies. Every, <laughs> someone wants to buy an enzyme or a uh, kit or a reagent, I, I see those things. They get passed in front of my eyes, but I, you know, very. It's very seldom where I look at something and say no, because you know, someday, so and so comes to me and says, "I need an antibody to run this experiment." What am I going to say? No. <laughs> Hard to say. You know, you told me to do this experiment. I need the antibody. And so, uh, most, you know, once you have people doing experiments, they need what they need to do the studies. Um, at the same time, there are places you can be more efficient, and certainly I'm sure there are ways that we could be more efficient. Uh, we've done some things to try to uh, decrease the amount of money that we throw down the, the toilet uh, that we don't have to spend. So we, we make all of our own enzymes. Uh, we have the clones for all of the polymerases and reverse transcript bases and other things, and so we don't pay anybody to make enzymes for us. We, we do that ourselves, so that saves a lot of money. Um, you know, you look for places to, to cut corners, but, it, but in the end, science is expensive. And, um, you know, one of the, if I have the choice between spending my time trying to micromanage my budget versus writing another grant, I'd rather write another grant and, and not have to uh, micromanage. <laughs> <laughs> but not not everybody has the luxury of being able to do every experiment that they that they can, and, and that uh, that does become more of a challenge if you have a certain budget and you can only do experiment A or experiment B, um, then you have to think more carefully about um, the payoff and the strategy uh, for how you're going to spend those funds. Um, but but there's you have to be careful not to fall in the trap of being too conservative because if you don't do the experiment, you're definitely not going to get the data. You were talking about the fact that you definitely have been writing more grants within this current economic uh, climate, and we already know the trends that are going to continue in that uh, in that light. It's science is going to be ever more complicated and much more expensive, and the competition is going to just inevitably increase. And it looks like the f uh, funding is going to continue to decrease incrementally. However, that starts to add much more stress on the individual uh, independence uh, researcher. And we already know that over, as we stress more, we stop focusing more on these risky projects and start focusing more on the quote-unquote safe projects. Do you find is that there is a balance between the two or, it's, or do you feel as though it becomes like a sink or swim? especially with new researchers going out there who is just now starting their, their lab this year or next year and the, the funding is getting ever more uh, stressful. So would you say that there's a balance of having some surefire experiments or projects uh, in the pipeline or like, or go for broke? 
No, I think you need to have two sides of your brain working at, at all times. I think you need to have an ambitious side, which is out to discover something new in some portion of your laboratory or people or half of each of your people should be, their time should be devoted to discovering something brand new and taking risks. Um, but at the same time, the laboratory as a whole has to be practical. So you laboratory has to produce something all the time to stay afloat. You have to publish papers in order to get grants. So you have to also, at the same time, be doing something where uh, you know that at the end of the day, if you do the experiments, there will be a paper coming out of it. Uh, so doing something safe and something risky is a good approach uh, for the entire lab, but also for individual people. As a mentor, I'm conscious of the fact that my graduate students need a paper to graduate or two. Uh, my postdocs need papers to get a job. And while you would like them to discover the next um, hot molecule, at the same time, you know that they're definitely not get a job, going to get a job if they never publish a paper on anything. So you need to have them working um, on at least two things. Um, sometimes it ends up being too many things. <laughs> I'm quite against that. Um, but a you know a rough uh, approach that we take is to try to have everybody doing something. On the one hand, that's a little more risky, and uh, on the other hand, something that's a little more a um, little more safe and, and developed. And it doesn't have to be safe; it just has to be a project that has already advanced to the stage where you can see that um, it's going to be productive. That's. So it, in essence, you're basically saying that you almost have to have like uh, a left brain, right brain kind of strategy in being able to move your move your science. You want to have a good balance of risk involved with the the safety side of things. Do you find it though a little bit stressful or ever increasingly stressful as time goes time goes on? Uh, not at this stage. I'm certainly it was it was probably more stressful than um, when I was starting out. Um, you know, my, my stress. Um, you know, a, a lot of my stress at this point comes from you know the worry of am I am, am I advancing my people the way I need to be? Are there projects? Because I feel when somebody's project doesn't work, I feel partially responsible for that because I gave them the project. And so, um, you know, I feel, um, uh, you know, invested and dedicated to my people and I want them to succeed. And it can be frustrating when, you know, some, the, the reality of science is that sometimes good ideas just don't work. Um, some hypotheses are wrong and that's how you, you learn. But, the, you know, the challenge of postdoc who gets put on the project where the hypothesis was wrong, um, you know, that's something I worry about and I, I uh, try to avoid having somebody end up in the, in the boat where all of their efforts um, you know, are, are disappointing. You want to make sure that to uh, try to balance people's projects so that at least something is working at all times. You know, Pete, I don't know if it, much people know about this, but you have totally been become like such an amazing like friend and mentor to me throughout the years and and a lot of people should really get to know and learn from you in that manner of what it takes to actually be a good scientific leader because it's true that you do have a tendency to care more for the people than yourself and it becomes a very self uh you're a very selfless person about that 
and even within my own career that you've you've sacrificed yourself to like help me to uh, further pursue my own uh, my own future and i really have to like thank you so much for that i mean you've become like one of my de own personal definitions of a what a scientific leader is but what would be your uh, you know, definition? You don't have to make me sound sound like Gandhi there. The other, uh, <laughs> you know, the the what you have to remember in um, when you, when you're running a group, you know, I can be I can afford to um, be paying attention to the people in my laboratory and to care about them because um, you have to remember at the end of the day, everything that they're doing, um, I'm taking credit for. <laughs> Uh, which is the, the the reality of the way the system is set up, right? I mean, the, uh, even if the, someone in my laboratory has a great idea and I don't have any input in it, um, you know, since I paid for the experiment, at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm it, I, it's my experiment. Uh, that's the the nature of the system, and so you know, when the the trade-off of, of having the luxury of, of having a bunch of people working in your name on your behalf is that you should be concerned about you know their individual future too because uh, I'm certainly benefiting every day from their efforts um, and so it should be a two-way street so it's not like I'm not getting anything out of it the way the system is set up I'm getting lots out of it they're all working for me <laughs> I mean, I've been in, uh, around to so many different groups and teams, and that is not as common as you would think. <laughs> so it's always good to hear that there are those that can learn from you that like this is this is the key for like long longevity. And so, what is your definition then of of a true scientific leader? Um. You know, I would I would say somebody who, uh, who who leads by example and conducts themselves um, in a way that is an inspiring to others, who's both both successful and uh, inspiring. Um, so I think you can be. Uh, they don't necessarily go together, but the best leaders um, demonstrate both. Demonstrate how you can succeed, but also how you can be. Um, a good person and a good mentor uh, at the same time. And, and mostly, again, I think that comes from just uh, the example that you set and how you carry yourself and how you conduct yourself. It's amazing, Peter. You know what? We can wrap it up right now, and I wanted to thank you, but is there anything that you would recommend to that lone uh, PhD scientist getting ready uh, uh, to go out there on uh, his or her own and they're about to take that plunge, what would you recommend for them? I would say that uh, you need to plan to succeed. Uh, the times are tough, um, but you have to remember that if you've chosen science for a career, the advantage is that you've chosen a very merit-based system. Um, unlike some other uh, professions, Law, for example, where <laughs> merit is not necessarily <laughs> um, in science. Uh, if you discover interesting things, you will do well. Uh, it really is a it, it is a meritocracy uh, at, the, at the bottom line. And although funding is always going to be tough, and there's going to be less funding than there are people, 
good science and good people will get the funding. And so going into it, you don't plan, don't plan to fail, plan to succeed, plan to be in the top 10%, plan to be in the, in the percentage that does get funded and that is successful. Um, that's, you have to go into it with the attitude that this is what I love to do and, uh, and I'm going to do it and I'm going to be successful at it. Uh, this is the best job in the world. If you, if you can get it and keep it, there's no other job where you can come to work every day and someone pays you to um, explore your own uh, ideas and, and interests. So um, plan to be, plan to succeed. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, that's what I plan to do. <laughs> Peter, I want to thank you so very much for taking this time out of your hectic, busy schedule. And I really, really thank you so very much for being a good mentor and leader within my own life. And I want to be able to uh, let the audience out there know that this is a good example to, f to follow their, within their own footsteps. So thank you so very much, Peter. You're very welcome. It was fun. Thanks, right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. What a great scientist and an amazing leader. Thanks again, Peter. If you'd like to know more about Peter Tontanos and his research, please go check out our show notes, and you'll see a link to all of his great published material at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash episode one. Thank you for listening to the Leading Life Science radio podcast. We'd love to hear from you, the listeners, so please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear from our guests that could help you on your journey. Also, please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences. Till the next time, happy sciencing. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz of the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast.